As Pastor Nate said, my name is Pastor Chris. I'm one of the associate pastors here. We want to welcome you here today. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, we are a church that's very much heads down, diving into God's Word. And so we have free Bibles in front of the chair in front of you. Uh, that is a gift from us to you. Please, if you don't have a Bible, take that, use that, mark it up. Uh, we would love to bless you with that. Suppose you are falsely accused of a crime. And further, what makes this really, really hard is that your accusers are those that even know you. What do you do in those situations? What would you do? How do you respond to that? You know, I suspect the first thing you would do is you'd probably make a defense, wouldn't you? You'd think it through, you'd reflect on the facts, and you'd work at articulating a defense so that in hopes that they would see the truth and kind of see the error in their thinking. Well, a short time later, you're brought into this courtroom before the judge and the jury and all the audience, and you're there to represent yourself. No pressure. And you make your case and you plead with them to see reason. But in the middle of the world's best defense ever given before a jury and a judge and an audience, Suddenly, the gavel comes slamming down, and the jury cries out, guilty, away with him. What would you think? How would you feel? Hurt, maybe? Would you think, this is not fair? If only they had been able to give, if I, I, if I could only give the whole defense, why would they not listen? Tell me, if you had the chance to make an appeal, would you make an appeal? And more importantly, how would you make that appeal in your heart? Out of bitterness and anger? Well, with that kind of tucked in the back of your minds, we're going to be looking at Acts 21, verses 37, all the way to the end of Acts 22 today. And so uh, that's on page 543 of that blue, Bi blue Bible in front of you. But why don't we uh, turn there now and follow along as I read, uh, starting from Acts 21, verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the Assyrians out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of the elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who also were there and bind them uh, and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And as I was on my way I, and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. 
And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and, and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out over the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I, I am a citizen from birth. And so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he he was being accused by the Jews. He unbound him and, and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet and be brought Paul and, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a light unto our feet. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us now through the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you would give me strength and wisdom and clarity to, to preach this message and that you would use this to build up your people and strengthen them and give them hope. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's two observations that we can find from our passage today. There's two in particular. First observation is we find is a gracious defense given to the Jews. A gracious defense given to the Jews. This is found from our opening verse right up until verse 21 of chapter 22. But see, we've got to remember where we've been, if we know where we're going. See, Paul has come back to Jerusalem. He's finished his third missionary journey. 
And he goes to the Jerusalem leaders there and he talks to them about his whole mission and what God's been doing. But they relay to him how there's been some people who have been, some of these Jews are talking about how he's, he's going around telling people to forsake Moses. And so they ask him to purify himself in the temple because of this. And so what does Paul do? Well, he goes with four others and he starts this purification process. Why? For, for the sake of unity and peace. But while there, we find that some of these Jews recognize him and they cry out that he brought this man, this man named Trophimus, a Gentile, into the temple. And immediately there's this uproar that takes place, isn't there? And they, they grab Paul, they drag him out of the temple, and they start beating on Paul and attempting to kill him. And then what we hear is that this, the Roman tribune, who is a commander of several of many soldiers, he hears of this and he comes running out and he grabs Paul and he pulls him aside. He stops the beating and he arrests Paul. And this brings us up to our opening verses here. Before Paul could be led away in verses 37 to 40, we find that Paul now will engage this Roman tribune and he does so in the Greek language. And he requests that he'd be able to speak to this mob, these very ones who were trying to kill him moments before. Now, I want us to note something. Paul comes across very respectful and gentle. Paul had just gotten beaten up, almost killed, and he does not start slandering the, the Jews to the Romans, like, did you not see what they just did? And while he's there, you know, we find that he's not argumentative. He's not combative. He appeals to the civil authority and to see if it would be okay if I could speak to these Jews. And we find that the tribune actually gives him permission. And this brings us up to our opening verse in Acts 22 where we see a lot of this gracious defense. See, Paul steps up, kind of steps up to the mic, if you will, and he says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense I make to you, make before you. Even in this, he's respectful and gentle. He doesn't call them names. He doesn't get all bent out of shape. Brothers and fathers. You know this is the exact same language that's used by Stephen when he stood before the Jews. And we know what happened to him. But here is Paul. He steps up to, and he, he, he will make a defense. We hear this word, he makes a defense. He will defend his actions. You know, the, this Greek word is the word apologius. Apologius. It's actually where we get a discipline in a study called apologetics. What is that? You're probably thinking, what in the world is apologetics? It's not about apologizing. It's not a study to learn how to say I'm sorry. Though maybe we need something like that. I don't know. Paul is not about to apologize for his faith. He's about to make a defense for his faith. And so this word apologius means to make a defense. We find long before this time in 400 BC, Athens would actually accuse Socrates of being a danger to society. And so what does he do? Socrates will have to make a defense and he titles his defense in Apologia. And so Paul will do the same. He will make an Apologia, make a defense today. But the thing about Paul's defense is it will not just change, it, it doesn't have the power just to change one's minds, it can change one's hearts too. And see, in his defense that he will make, he will do so by giving his personal testimony. 
something that had happened and took place 28 years, 29 years before his testimony, he's going to make a defense. So you don't need to be an expert with every scientific or philosophical discipline to make a defense. You just need to believe in the Lord Jesus, spend time in his word, and then declare what he's done for you. You see, a biblical testimony, one that can change hearts, and we always need to remember this is one that contains the gospel. No gospel, no power to change hearts. We read in Revelation 12, 11, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. What is that? Their testimony is that they had faith in what the blood of the Lamb accomplished for them. Does God do great things in our life? Yes, absolutely. Can and should we share them with people? Yes, absolutely. But the true hope of everyone is found at the cross. So this leads to the question, do you know your testimony? If you don't, how can you share it? You know, I read an article from the Gospel Coalition website by a, a campus minister and author. His name was Shelby Abbott, and I think he says it really well. He says, personal testimonies are one of the most, most influential tools the Holy Spirit uses to stir spiritual interest and point people to, toward Christ. There's no more poignant and powerful way to communicate the gospel than by sharing our story. Not because we're so great, but because Jesus is so great. You see, Paul never forgot his testimony. In fact, Luke will recount Paul's testimony three times in the book of Acts. But we have to ask, what, what do we see in Paul's testimony here? What, what are the components, if you will? Well, first, found in verses 1 to 5, we see that Paul is a sinner. Paul is a sinner. He starts his address by speaking to them in the Hebrew or Aramaic language. See, it would not have been wise for him to start speaking to them in the Greek language. That would have only reinforced the Jews' kind of hatred and of, of Paul and his sympathetic views towards the Gentiles. He would never have been able to get any further. He would never have been able to talk to them about the gospel. And so he shares of their common foundation and heritage. This should help undermine their arguments against him. And what does he say? Well, he tells them, first, I'm a Jew. I was educated by Gamaliel, a well-respected teacher in Jerusalem. Everyone knew who this man was. In verses 3 and 4, he says he was committed to the law and, and zealous for God, and he even appeals to their zeal for God. He's trying to make these connections with his listeners. In verses 4, it goes on to say he was even against this very Christianity that they are so much against today. So much so that Paul was putting Christians to death. He was throwing them in prison. And it didn't matter if you were a man or a woman. See, it was a distortion and a perversion of the truth to the Jews. It was a cult in their eyes, and it needed to be stamped out, and he wholeheartedly agreed with them. He even says even the religious leaders knew of Paul's past. These Jews could have easily enough gone and appealed to them. It may have been 28 years, but they would remember Paul. Oh, yeah, they would remember him. Paul was their champion. He was their prized fighter. He was the one that was going to go the distance to kind of knock this out so that it would never get up again, never return. See, to appeal to a common past to help make a connection with people 
really to help open up the door to share the gospel, that's a good thing. You don't compromise the truth, but you seek to show others that you are just like them. See, prior to Christ, we can all relate. Life wasn't about God. Life was about us. We were like Eve. God said this, but we decided for ourselves. Right? We did whatever made us happy. You know, life is not about happiness, but righteousness. Life is not about happiness, it's about righteousness. You know, the happy thief is still going to be held accountable for his unrighteous thievery. And appealing to them, then, Paul says, you know, I had the same zeal that they do. But now Paul sees that his actions were actually sinful. And this leads to verses 6 to 16, where now Paul will recount to them the revelation of Jesus Christ and his conversion experience. You know, he recounts his road, his trip. He's on that road to Damascus. We've read it. We know the story. He's on there, on that road to head to the synagogues to arrest these Christians. A supernatural event takes place. You know, it's about noon. You know, it's like the brightest time of the day. And then suddenly this light appears. And it's clear that this is no mere light, is it? It is so bright that Paul has to fall to his knees. And the account actually says the light shone around Paul. In other words, you're not going to hide from this light. And the last I checked, light casts shadows. Not this light. This was clearly a supernatural light. And we read that a voice now speaks from this light and says to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now Paul's response is, who are you, Lord? In other words, who, who are you that I'm persecuting you? And we read in verses 8 that Jesus responds and says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. You know, the logical question then you have to ask is, how in the world was Paul persecuting Jesus? He was not attacking Jesus. He was not throwing Jesus into prison. He wasn't killing Jesus. He wasn't taking stones and slinging them up into heaven hoping to hit Jesus, you know. So how in the world was he persecuting Jesus? Well, here's how. Because if you're a Christian and you're united with Christ, then when they persecute you, they persecute Christ. You attack the body, you are attacking the head. The head feels the pain that the body feels. In other words, Paul, everything you were doing for me really has been against me. It's been sin. You know, Christian, if you have been attacked for your faith, when you've been ridiculed and mocked, maybe hated or more, you know it's been an affront against Christ? You know he feels it, he sees it, he sympathizes with you. He can even strengthen you to endure in and through that. Do you believe that? Does that give you hope? At the same time, though, this should also make us reflect about how we talk to each other. See, if Jesus Christ is persecuted when unbelievers mock, reject, and attack you, would it not also follow that, if he, that he is also persecuted when we do these things to each other? Scripture says in 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So the next time you're 
tempted to kind of mock, ridicule, or hate a brother or sister, just kind of imagine that you're looking at Christ and see how easy it is to continue in that path. You know, it's funny, kind of fascinating to me when I think of this passage. It's not here that the Jews interrupt Paul. You kind of think it would be at this point. Paul had just shared how Jesus appeared to him from heaven and nothing from the critics. Kind of weird. I think it kind of shows how captivated they were at the thought that Paul was sympathizing with Gentiles. That they brought, they, they were so fixated on that, they didn't care, or maybe they didn't even hear what Paul was saying about Jesus appearing to him. They, they were so distracted, they missed it. I pray no one, none of us are ever so distracted that we miss it. It's like a story of a boy who, you know, he's in this tragic accident. A young little guy, and it's, his life is hanging on by a thread. He's got injuries all over him. And your heart breaks, and, but the real real dangerous injuries. He's got this cut into his artery. And the doctors there, they get there, the paramedics, and they keep pressure on him. They're rushing him to the hospital, trying to save this young boy's life. And while they're trying to work on this boy, suddenly the little boy raises up his little hand, and on the end there's a little nick, a little blood, a little cut. cut. And he's so fixated on this. He's like, you got to fix this. The doctors, they know. No, and they move the hand. They work on the life-threatening injury. They understand the artery needs to be fixed. This is the real issue. That may hurt, but addressing that will not save your life. I think sometimes we can engage people and get caught up on the things in life that gives us the bruises and the scratches and never talk about how they're bleeding out and they need the gospel before it's too late. And Paul, hearing Jesus speak to him, doesn't say, you know, shock, like, what? They were right? <laughs> he doesn't say, Lord, you should have given me more evidence. No, in verses 10, he says, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? You know, he didn't know what it was for him to do, but he knew he had to do something. He knew he was a servant. And with no other details, Christ says, no. Paul, you're going to go to Damascus. I'll tell you then what I'm going to have you do. In other words, you're going to have to wait. And I I don't know. If I'm the only one who finds waiting really hard, (laughs) waiting on the Lord can be hard. But if God says wait, you don't have a choice. You need to wait. The question will be, are you going to wait patiently or begrudgingly? And that's something you need to think and pray about. So Paul, who who were told at this point could not see physically because of the light, had somehow done something to his physical sight, now has seen in a spiritual light Christ in in ways he had never seen before. And now he has to be led to Damascus by his companions. And while in Damascus, Paul tells these Jews again in his testimony that this man named Ananias comes to him. Ananias. Now who's Ananias? We read that he's just... He's he's not just like any other man. He is a devout man according to the law. A devout man according to the law. Why is Paul talking so much about the strictness to the law and that this man is a devout man to the law? Because he wants to make the connection so they will listen to what he has to say. Their view, their understanding of Paul was wrong. Paul didn't forsake Moses. He just understood Moses pointed to Jesus. 
And so in Ananias, before Paul, we read that he heals him of his blindness. And then now we read that he gives this kind of climactic answer to Paul as to what you are to do next. What are you to do next? Well, Paul has been waiting over three days. We read in verse 14 to 16. He says, follow along with me in your Bibles. He says, the God of our fathers... Verse 16, 14, sorry. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have, have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul is to be a witness for Christ. You will tell others, Paul, about what you have seen and heard about me, the righteous one. No, no, we got to think, wait a second. Paul, did you see Jesus though? We know you heard Jesus, but it, the indication from the text is that you didn't actually see Jesus. So what does it mean that Paul saw and heard the righteous one? See, we have not seen Jesus. We have not heard his voice audibly. Scripture is clear in Hebrews 11.1 1, that we live by faith. So, but there is a seeing and a hearing that does actually take place. Third John 11 says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And Hebrews 3, 7, and 8 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. See, this language that's being used is to really counteract the hardness of the Jews' hearts. We see elsewhere in Romans 11a, Paul, quoting from the Old Testament, says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear down to this very day. So how do we hear and see Jesus? If you are a Christian, you have heard and seen God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has revealed his son to you in such a way that it can be said, you have seen and heard him. And God graciously revealed his son, Jesus Christ, to Paul in the same way. And thus he personally experienced Christ. And you know what? No one was going to change Paul's mind. There's a little girl who once was in this old farmhouse, you know, with those wall radiators that get really hot. And she was told, you know what, you don't touch that radiator. Because if you touch it, you're going to get burned. And this is the person leaves way. And like all little kids, and maybe big kids too, curiosity gets the better of you. And what do you do? You reach out and you touch this thing. And so she reaches out and touches it. And the moment she touches it, searing hot pain shoots up her arm and she gets burned and she's gone from an intellectual understanding that that's hot to an experiential understanding that that's hot well a short time later someone else comes along he's a radiator expert and he says you know what little girl it's okay you can touch that radiator tell me do you think there's anything that anyone could say that would get her to touch that radiator absolutely not why because she has gone from the realm of intellectual understanding to the realm of experiential understanding. Christian, when you have seen and heard the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the same has happened to you. Can anyone really change your mind? Of course not. It's like putting on our tombstone someday. I know, I know, I know my Redeemer lives. Amen? And now Paul, is, we find he's given his testimony that he was a sinner, that Jesus, 
Christ revealed himself to him, and he has responded, and now he's saved. And finally, in the third part of his testimony, verses 17 to 21, the charge is given, the mission. We find that three years after this Damascus Road experience, Paul will return to Jerusalem. And we read that he's in the temple praying, and suddenly there's this vision from Jesus that says, you got to leave, Paul. you got to leave Jerusalem quick. This message of yours is not going to be received well by these Jews. And sadly, nothing has changed 25 years after that moment. They still reject this message. In verse 19, Paul makes this appeal to God. And he makes this kind of defense to God that, you know, but they should understand. These people, they, you know, they, they will remember all that I've done. Everything I've done. They would listen you know, he refers, he kind of makes his defense to God saying, like, I, I imprisoned these Christians. I had them beat. Any who believed in you. I even, I, I even approved of the killing of Stephen. You know, Paul is somehow thinking it through. He's trying to be reasonable. He's, he's looking at these Jews. He's looking at his past. And he's thinking, what they should understand, we have the same background. We should understand. But why won't they listen? Because Jesus hadn't revealed himself to them. We pray for people. We ask God, what? What do we ask? Reveal yourself to them. We share the gospel with people because it's the only avenue in which God the Holy Spirit uses to open the eyes of the people to God the Son so as to bring them into the family of God the Father. So Jesus says to Paul, nope, sorry, you can't stay. I know what's going to happen, Paul. I'm sending you away. And what does he say? I'm going, go. I'm sending you to the Gentiles. This is your mission, Paul. In making his defense, we find he identifies himself as the sinner. He's come to the Savior, and now he's given a mission. And what did that mission entail? Well, we know he was a witness, yes, but is that all there was? The question we have to ask, what is the message that they won't receive? Well, at this point, something unexpected happens, which leads to our second observation. Our second observation is that a gracious defense is now given to the Romans, verses 22 to 30. A gracious defense given to the Romans. You know, it's like something snapped in these these Jews' brains. They stop listening when they hear this. In verse 22, we read that they wanted to kill him, all because he made that word, he said that word, Gentile. You know, it was, again, it wasn't because of that heavenly experience of Jesus that did it. Nope. It was reaching out to Gentiles, offering hope to Gentiles. You know, it's funny. Paul actually doesn't get to complete his testimony. You know that? He gets interrupted. He gets cut off. Their hatred of the Gentiles somehow confirmed for them that Paul must have brought this Gentile into the temple. They never asked him if it was true. They simply assumed the worst. Where are the witnesses? And you've got to think, why were they so angry? You know, in, in their recent history, there was a case where a Gentile was brought, went into the temple. In 168 BC, the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes had captured Jerusalem, and he actually erected a statue to Zeus and slaughtered a pig in the temple. And we know pigs are unclean. There was a lot of anger that they had. So here we see Paul is misrepresented. The defense has been abruptly cut off. The, t- the testimony has been silenced. The gavel has dropped, if you will. The jury has spoken guilty, and the punishment is death. 
Have you ever been so zealous over something that you make an assumption before hearing all the facts? You speak up on something out of an emotional zeal only to have to blush and ask for forgiveness later? Do you even ask for forgiveness later? All because you misheard or did not bother to ask for clarity or more information? Proverbs 19.2 says, Desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. We find that not only did the Jews that were lacking this very knowledge condemn Paul, but we find also the Romans do the same. The Roman tribune in verse 24, who probably, you got to remember, he probably had no idea what Paul had just been saying. Paul was speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic, right? He had no idea. But what does he do? He assumes the worst. He grabs Paul and he wants to bring him back into the barracks to be flogged. He sees the anger of these Jews and he assumes the worst. Paul is guilty of something. Instead of asking Paul, you know, again, he knew Paul knew Greek. Paul spoke to Greek, spoke to him in Greek. He decides, what does he decide? He, tries, he decides to beat the truth out of him by flogging. Paul is misrepresented again. Roman flogging was brutal. If you know much about Roman flogging, it was brutal. The condemned person would be stretched out and tied to a pillar. You know, there was no limit on the number of lashes under Roman law like there was Jewish law. It was done by what was called a flagellum or a flagrum. This was a wooden handle with uh, many leather whips that came out from it, and each one of these whips would have pieces of metal or bone tied into it. And the lashings would continue until the flesh hung down in bloody shreds. It was so severe, it could permanently cripple someone. In some cases, people would die in the process. It is actually said the Roman emperor Domitian was so horrified by its practice. You remember your savior suffered under such flogging. This is what Paul was about to go. You know, he may even be in the exact same spot or being led to the same spot that our Savior was. We don't know. See, the Romans had no problem, no problem whatsoever scourging somebody to the point of death to find out what the issue was. Non-citizens of Rome had no rights. Well, they, had, they did not have the luxury of due process, if you will. You see, his defense was rejected by the Jews. They were cut short. What would Paul say to these Romans now? Would he say anything? Could he say anything? If the religious authorities would not listen, would the civil? Paul would make the same defense that we've seen a short time ago in Acts 16 when he was in the Philippian jail. See, Paul was a Roman citizen, and so he speaks up. He deserves a trial before any verdict or sentencing could take place. See, Paul, it wasn't that he just knew Mosaic law. He knew civil law as well. He had rights as a Roman. You know, as Canadians or those who, have, who live in Canada, you, you need to know your rights. You know, we need to know they're not absolute. They can change. But while you have them, you should exercise them in a way that glorifies God. When you have been misrepresented, or your civil freedoms have been taken advantage of, do you reach out to your MPs or those in authority around you? So you may not always have the opportunity to, but if you do, do you make that defense before them? But I want to note something here. Again, Paul does not complain. 
He does not complain about his treatment from the Jews, and he does not complain about his treatment from the Romans. As Christians, the gospel has transformed our lives so that we are to live for Christ. Do you realize we don't deserve anything good, anything good from God? If God does not give you anything else in life except life in Christ, let's think about this. No wealth, no health, no family, no possessions. We should still think how gracious is our God. And Paul being given an opportunity to make his defense and knowing his civil rights, in verse 25, he does. He speaks up. Is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned, he says. You see, under Roman law, it was wrong to bind a Roman citizen. It was wrong to condemn a Roman citizen without a trial. And it was definitely wrong to flog a Roman citizen. And it's recorded in the works of a, a, a Roman lawyer named Marcus Cicero, who lived a short time before Christ. He said this, he goes, To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. And to slay him is almost an act of murder. So you can see why the tribune questions it. He's questioning the veracity of what Paul has just said. And so he comes and he, he talks to Paul after hearing that Paul has said he's a Roman. And he says, well, wait a second. I bought my citizenship with a, a large sum of money. In other words, I, I'm looking at you. There's no way you have all that money, right? Are you seriously thinking? Like, I, I had spent a lot of money to get my citizenship. I'm not thinking, are you just out to save your hide, in other words? But Paul speaks up and he says, no, 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 no. My citizenship is from birth. You know, in that culture, to be born a Roman was way more prestigious than having to pay for it. Somehow we see that this, this seems to settle the issue in the tribune's mind. And he, he realized what he's done is illegal and, and why, no wonder, he's fearful. We read in verse 29. You know, it's funny that the Jews had no problems breaking their Mosaic law and trying to kill Paul, and yet here the Romans had a great fear of breaking their civil law. The irony in that. But the response is immediate. They unbind him. This doesn't mean they let him go. That just means they removed the chains from him. They still detained him until an official trial could take place. And we read that Paul's defense somehow now has worked. He was smart. You know, he wasn't going to suffer needlessly, and neither should we. He used the tools available to protect himself, and he never denied the faith. In fact, as we, as we read, many cases, in, in Paul's case, this actually has led for him to actually have another defense against the Jews. In verse 30, we read that the tribune, knowing Paul now is a Roman, still questioning whether Paul is telling the truth, will bring him out the next day, to set up a real trial with the chief priests and the council. See, Paul knew the, the laws of the land, and he used them appropriately. He knew his rights and exercised those rights. He never backed down from speaking up. Even when he was facing backlash for it, he spoke boldly. But he always did it with gentleness and respect. He knew his testimony. He gave his defense. He trusted in Christ, but yet he was shrewd. Even in this ordeal, he never slandered the Jews to the Romans, and he never slandered the Romans to the Jews. He would trust God. So what is our takeaway? A gospel-transformed life 
is to result in a gracious life of gospel defense. A gospel-transformed life is to result in a gracious life of gospel defense. But what was the end of Paul's testimony? And you kind of wonder about that. What was the end of it? Remember, he was cut off. What was this message that he wasn't supposed to share because they would reject? Well, turn with me real quick to Acts 26, 16. Here's what else Jesus told Paul on that fateful day on the road to Damascus 28 years earlier. Acts 26, 16 says, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appealed to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. See, Paul, Paul's mission was that. He would be a servant and witness to the risen Lord. Yeah, we heard that. He would go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel. Yeah, we get that. Why? So that they may be delivered from the power of Satan, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. They would be brought into the family of God. Brother and sister, we have the same mission today. We have seen and heard. We have experienced Christ, and now we are on mission. We share our testimony of what Jesus Christ has done, how he has forgiven our sins. He has delivered us from the power of sin. He has brought us into his family. And if one repents and believes in Jesus Christ, this will happen to them as well. This is the conclusion to Paul's testimony, and it is the conclusion to your testimony. And if something, it's something that, that every person needs to hear. People need to hear that apart from Christ, we are all sinners. We are all guilty before God. But God, but God, we heard that earlier, but God became flesh. He dwelt among us in Jesus Christ. He would come, he would die. He would take the wrath of God, the punishment of sin upon his shoulders, and he would rise from the dead victorious, amen? And if one repents, turns from their sin to Christ, and believes his finished work before they, that he has done, they are forgiven. They are delivered from the power of sin. They are brought into the family of God. And if you're not a believer here today, that message is for you. If you are a believer today, then you are called to proclaim and make defense of this very gospel that has saved you. You are called to let your light shine before others, and therefore in some way, some way, you will be on trial before this world. You will be questioned. They may view you as guilty and hypocrites and not in touch with reality. The gavel may drop before you get your defense out. But how do you respond to this? With grace? Do you stop defending? Are you prepared to make a defense again, again, and again? So I ask, do you know your testimony? And have others heard it? In closing, I would just read 1 Peter 3.15. It says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This was Paul, what Paul strove to do, and it is what we are called to strive to do. You're, you have a testimony. I encourage you to know it, 
and to share it so others, by God's grace, may have a testimony as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the grace you have poured into our lives, how you have opened up our eyes to who Jesus Christ is. You have given us a testimony of, of who you are and what you've done, Lord. Help us to share that with boldness with others, full of grace and truth, Lord God. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.